Welcome to this edition of On Politics. I'm Dr. Eric Morrow at Tarleton State University, and we want to welcome you to the show this week. Uh, as we continue to move through this election cycle, as we continue to see breaking news every day, uh, as I've heard many states like drinking out of a fire hose right now because of the amount of change and issues that are coming up just almost on a daily basis as we move closer and closer to the 2020 election. And we're going to get to some of that in the second segment of the show, because we will welcome back Professor of Political Science here at Tarleton State, Dr. Malcolm Cross, who's also our resident expert on the presidency. And we wanted to talk about a couple of issues that have happened this past week. One, look back at the vice presidential debate. Now, I know this has been given a lot of attention and across all different media platforms, but we want to go back and look at it in terms of the history of these types of debates and really what their role is at this point, especially as this might be the last debate. It might have been the last debate that we have for this cycle, uh, given other developments. And then in the second part of that, uh, Dr. Cross, knowing his presidents and knowing some of this uh, history that's that's critical, that often we see similar things come up, uh, we want to look at how health issues have been treated by different presidents. And as we have seen with President Trump, this has become very politicized. And of course, it's it's kind of recognized that it probably always will. But in the way that that it's been handled, it's it's looking at that and looking back to see what other presidents have done, because it's not always been the same. Uh, certain presidents have not been as transparent as others. And we want to look back at that and give it a little more historical context, given all of the discussion about that. But in the first half of the show, I wanted to look at a couple of things. Uh, one is that uh, today uh, I... Uh, had my training as an election judge, or I should say that was on Friday. We're, we're airing here on Sunday, but I had my training as an election judge, and uh, I wanted to go in a little bit into that because I think if you've never done this before, it is a very engaging and interesting experience to really get on the inside of how elections work. And I know we had the interview back earlier uh, in the uh, cycle here with Gwenda Jones, the Erath County clerk who is over county elections and that elections process and how all of that is uh, carried on and, and processed with each election. Uh, but I want to uh, talk about this experience today and some of the highlights from it. I do want to remind you that our, uh, as we broadcast on Sundays at noon on uh, KTRL 90.5 FM that we're also uh, streaming on tarletonradio.com. And if you miss any show, you can go back to SoundCloud and that's on politics with Eric Morrow and you can access the previous shows. You can also uh, uh, download the podcast uh, through Amazon or other podcast sources. And I also want to remind you of our Facebook page as well. And I've uh, continually put up previous shows as they relate to current issues, but also connect with the previous show and then other articles and things that are, are critical to the issues that we're discussing each week. So I had the opportunity to train as an election judge. And, and I think one of the first things that I want to say about this is the just the overwhelming response uh, to the need for election judges. Now, what has made this more challenging is that we're in the COVID era, we're in the middle of this pandemic, and there are certainly health concerns. Many election workers are uh, senior adults uh, who have higher risk levels, uh, some do related to COVID. And so one of the concerns going into this election cycle was would there be enough people to help uh, carry out uh, voting, uh, facilitate voting at different uh, polling places, and to help uh, make sure that the election is handled in the proper way. And one of the things I learned in the training was that here in Erath County, and I, I want to really thank everyone who uh, applied, everyone that, that wanted to take this opportunity to help, but they actually had to turn people away. They had more applicants uh, this cycle than, they, than they've had, and they had more than enough. And I, I wanna say that perhaps we had some small 
contribution to that because that's a message that I've emphasized several times on this show. And even when we interviewed uh, the county clerk was trying to encourage people uh, to do more, do more than just vote and to move beyond if you're not in that high risk category and you could help in some way. Uh, we needed more of us who are middle-aged or younger to work as election workers. And so I want to thank everyone for their willingness to help and to ensure that we do have uh, the people at the polling places. Now, another thing that I wanted to, to point out, and this is something that has changed, and I think it's a, one of those changes that we've seen in the past that is very beneficial, is that we're no longer talking about uh, precinct polling places. So elections in the past in many places were set up where you had to go to a specific location depending on the precinct where you lived. And here in Erath County for this election, uh, what are set up are what we call voting centers. Now they are still in areas that would be uh, uh, precinct areas or communities or so on, but because of the, the technology that's being used, as long as you're registered, you can walk in and have that registration checked, have your ID, there, there's forms of ID that, that you need to have military or a passport or a driver's state-issued driver's license, there's a election certificate, there's a state-issued identification card. You, you can vote at any of these, these uh, voting centers. And that's what they're, they're referring to them as, is voting centers, because you can go into any of these Okay, any location, uh, Graham Street Church of Christ uh, a Community Center, the Texas Bank out on the North Loop, uh, Dublin, Bluffdale, so on, where all these uh, voting centers are. And uh, what will happen is once you are checked in, it's going to print the ballot that will match up with your registration. Okay, where you live with, if that's in a certain school district, if that's in a city, whatever is being voted on. Uh, with this election, and a lot of it is local as combined with uh, national elections, and we do have some statewide. We have a senator uh, that uh, uh, race for the senator uh, that is going on as well, and and so this makes it a lot more convenient. I think in some ways, it 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 takes away that confusion of well, where do I go? Where where do I go to vote? Uh, it also helps to facilitate things like uh, drive-through voting. So people who are not able to get out of a car, uh, if they're ill or if they're handicapped or in some way they're just not able to physically walk into a polling center, then workers can go out and get their identification, check it, and then they can vote uh, using the equipment that's available. Uh, I think at one location here in Erath County, we have a tablet type voting and then the other places the machines are actually portable and battery powered where you can take them outside uh, for someone to vote. Uh, but uh, I think that's critical for people to know. You just need to go somewhere that's a, a polling or voting center and vote. And so what I saw this morning along with that was just the order and the planning. I think that's one of the things when you go through this training and you're preparing for election day, you're seeing the amount of work that goes into planning, especially for a general election when you know turnout is going to be quite high. Uh, and I think that's to be very, com uh, that's commendable. Uh, people are doing their jobs. People are working hard to make sure that voting is accessible, uh, that, 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 that people can go and go through that process and overcome whatever uh, challenges might be there and understanding how that works, using a machine, um, getting to a voting uh, a center, you know, knowing that you can go to any of these places, uh, that, that you're going to have people there that are going to help you to get through this process. And a lot of planning goes into all of that uh, for a wide range of reasons. I, I mean, part of it is just the, it's certainly the integrity of the vote, of wanting to ensure that people's votes are counted, uh, that uh, they are, that they do have uh, the, the right to vote and they've registered and they're coming to exercise that right. And that if they do have impediments on their part that accommodations have been made to be able to help them to get through that process, uh, as well as just the, the management of it itself. I mean, a, a, a place to vote is not a place 
for people to argue about politics, uh, to uh, share their opinions on certain issues. It, it is a place to vote for anyone to go in and make the vote that they choose, that they, they select the way they want to vote and not be influenced uh, by bringing the politics of all of it into the voting place. I mean, I think that's how we want to say sacred in, in one way, but how significant we see that right, that we protect that space. Uh, and so one of the things that I knew a little bit about this, but uh, uh, we were told more things about what you can do going into a polling place, and that's certainly not talk politics. Uh, you, uh, But the other part of it is uh, demonstrating something that might be political or might be engaging for another person and create a uh, contention. And so there are limits certainly on signs and things outside. Uh, you can't have within a hundred feet of the building of where the voting center is, but it's also wearing political garb. And it doesn't just have to say the names of, of candidates. It can have some type of slogan uh, on there that's associated with a particular candidate or a party. Uh, and so that that's some of the things that people need to be thinking about. They're, they're going in not to uh, express openly uh, to other people who they're voting for and why they're not going in there to enter into conversations about who will be uh, the best president or who they're voting for and and, and who who they think is the uh, the right one and what issues have led them to that decision. You're going in to vote just like every other person that's going in to vote and we should be respectful. We should be uh, recognizing that that is something we all share in terms of that right to vote. And we should let that process go forward and follow it in terms of order. And that's, I think, very critical. And I, certainly here in our county, I've seen that affirmed just in the, the, the people who are involved in this and what they're doing and the amount of work that they're putting into it. Uh, so those are some things to, to, to think about the order and planning, but in a couple of other things, I was concerned going into this, well, how much experience? I've not done this before. Uh, how, how do I prepare for it? And one of the things that, that helps is the assurance that at each polling place or voting center, I've got to change my language here, we're going to see people who have been doing this for years. And I think we owe them a lot of gratitude as well, is that you see people as election judges and, and workers who have been doing this election after election after election and have that experience. They know the technology. They know uh, how to do things. There's a presiding judge at each uh, voting center that helps to tackle the more difficult issues. And so this, this is significant in that you have people who have committed to doing this on a regular basis and come back and and, and help in that environment and see it as, as a part of their civic duty and civic engagement. The other thing I think that helps us to peer into this kind of behind the curtain a little bit is, is, is the training, uh, that, that training is necessary. So I've spent three hours in training uh, to learn a lot more about exceptions, but also the process. I mean, it's, it's 90 plus percent of the votes that you handle or the people that come in are, are going to follow a similar process. Their ID is going to have the correct address on it. They're, they're, all things are going to be in order and they're going to proceed and vote. But there are going to be those exceptions. And like I said, some of the accommodations, the, the, the drive up voting, uh, provisional ballots for those who may not be registered or they did and it's not showing up or there's other issues involved. Uh, they've moved, and so there's a process to go through for that so that they're voting based on where they live now and not what may appear on their driver's license or, or other uh, ID. Uh, it's just all of those things that uh, are, are exceptions or things that, that can happen that need to be prepared and need to be able to help people and guide them through that process and not create more obstacles for people of being able to vote. And the state law on this has, has provided the pathway and the means and the guidance uh, in doing uh, many of these things. Another area that I think uh, is critical, especially in the uh, COVID environment that we're in, and that is safety. And that's where in ERAF County and the election officials have really worked 
in terms of uh, polling uh, voting centers. Okay, so we have several new voting centers that are larger, of a larger capacity, and they're able to spread out voting machines. They're able to provide hand san sanitizer. I mean, there's even a process for when someone signs uh, uh, to receive their ballot that uh, that pen goes into a a dirty pen box so that those can be cleaned. So single use pens until they're cleaned and then put back into the cycle again. I think this shows the, the level that election officials have gone to uh, to provide safety. I know some of the uh, places where the machines might be a little closer together, but where the, the voters will be still six feet apart. They have screens that they're gonna put up uh, that will be cleaned each time. Each each voting machine will be cleaned each time. That's what some of the election judges and workers will be doing. And so they're they're bringing these people on board. And and I'll be one of those. I'll I'll, I'll be there. I'm sure since I'm a newbie, most of the time with a square bottle and going around wiping off machines. But the the goal is to create a safe environment where people can come in and cast their ballot and and know that they've done their duty. Uh, that they have. Uh, taking this this uh, right to vote seriously and the the obstacles to do that, especially in the time that we're in, many of those have been reduced. So just in kind of concluding this before I move on to my next topic uh, for today, it's just again a thank you, a thank you to our election workers, a thank you to, to those uh, our election officials who are leading this process, uh, to those who volunteered, uh, signed up and applied to be election judges, uh, for those that have been doing it for for years and are back again to help. I think all of this shows that, that, that what we do right here at home, we can definitely trust the integrity of this process. But I, and I also think this is a reflection. I think it's a reflection of people in these areas all over our country, that they're, they're giving that time, they're giving that 12-hour day uh, to be able to help uh, ensure the integrity of the vote. And I think if in, in the interviews that I've heard and the, the things that I've read, in the really looking at the the limited amount of fraud that has has gone on in the past that has not influenced election outcomes, I think we we need to counter that with in in our areas knowing the the quality of the people who are giving their time and their effort and attention to ensure the integrity uh, of this election. So keep all of those things in mind. Go vote. Early voting starts on October 13th here in Texas, and uh, you can go on to the Erath County election site and find the locations and all the information you need, as well as I think there are 54 sample ballots, depending on where you live in the county. So you can find the ballot that you will see based on where you live, your, your precinct, your city or, or county, I should say, uh, city or school, it'll all be Erath County, but you would be, you'll be able to look at some of that information and to be more informed. Before we take a break here shortly and then welcome Dr. Cross, I do wanted to talk a little bit about what is going on here in Texas because we have a brand new University of Texas, Texas Tribune poll that gives Donald Trump a five-point lead in Texas. And so this is, uh, I think, great to look at. Here we are within a few weeks of the election. And we're, we're also seeing these national numbers. And of course, at times we've seen in some polls that Texas has been in a dead heat, that, that Biden has made up some ground and that Texas was in play. I, in looking at all of this, and I rarely make predictions on the show or anything, but because I uh, I think maybe that's the political science side of me in here of saying, let's let's see what happens and let's, let's analyze it after the fact. But I think I've been thinking all along that this is not necessarily, this is not the year that Texas goes blue in terms of the presidential race. I think it, it will be close. I think the polling shows us that it'll be close. And I think a lot of that will depend on turnout in urban areas of the state. If turnout is really high, and we're anticipating that it will be, but if it exceeds expectations, uh, then I think there's a chance that not only will it be this very close, but the but it will be in play. But uh, I just do not see uh, how that that this cycle is the one that that is going to do it. Uh, I think one of the things in Texas that we have to consider, as I've said before, when we look across the country, and that is that Texas has many of these mid-sized urban centers 
that are uh, identify more with the Republican Party and Republican candidates. And that if that turnout is high in those areas as well, that's going to offset uh, the larger de Democratic turnout in our major metropolitan areas. So that that's always a factor, I think, that at times it gets overlooked. I don't know that it's overlooked in this UT Texas Tribune poll. I think it this poll probably has is more accurate uh, than many other polls that are out there in showing where these two candidates are statewide and because they're factoring in some of those issues. But I think this is not the cycle. Maybe in another four years, we will probably see some House of Representatives seats that will go uh, to the Democrats that will change, that, that Republicans will lose some ground. Uh, we will see some state changes in the state legislature, uh, whether that changes the uh, the makeup of the legislature. I mean, I think that's going to be an interesting thing to see out of this election. We certainly will see with the Senate race, uh, Cornyn, John Cornyn has a sizable lead. Not, it's not huge, but I think it's eight points at this uh, point, just as the, the same poll that was done with Biden and Trump uh, shows that Cornyn has, is more likely to win this race. And I think that, again, that's a reflection of uh, of the turnout, as well as the spread right now between uh, Trump and Biden. And one of the challenges here, I think, in Texas is for this to be a, wide, a wider margin, uh, is that uh, the Republican candidate has to appeal to independents and even some Democrats. I mean, the percentage of people in Texas identifying with the Democratic Party is, uh, or at least voting Democrat, not necessarily being members of the party, has continued to increase. And because of that, there's the need for a Republican candidate to, to draw from some of that vote to stay at the margins that we've seen in the past. But, but Trump is definitely not doing that. And in fact, it's moved the other way where uh, he is had less of that swing vote from what we saw in 2016 that he can depend on. So as we go into it, we'll look, there's still plenty of time here for other events to happen that may influence the outcome. But as we've said on previous shows, this is one of the most steadiest races that we've seen uh, since 1940 in terms of the swing uh, in uh, polling and national polling and in other areas. And I just don't see that changing that much going into these final weeks, especially here in Texas, and enough that it would give Biden an edge uh, to be able to win the state. I think all eyes are on many other states like Georgia and Arizona, certainly the traditional swing states, Pennsylvania, uh, Florida, Wisconsin, Michigan, Ohio. Uh, we will see. I think those are going to be much more critical in this election uh, than uh, Texas. But we will watch it and we will bring you commentary and analysis over the next few weeks and certainly after the election uh, to see what happened. We're going to take a short break and when we come back we will welcome Dr. Malcolm Cross to the show and we will talk things presidential. We'll be right back. Politics can be confusing, but On Politics with Eric Morrow has your back. Follow the show on Facebook. Search On Politics with Eric Morrow to stay up to date with the show and all the sources to follow right along. T for Texas is a Texas-based history podcast from historian Dr. T. Lindsay Baker. Find a new episode every Thursday morning wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to On Politics. We're glad you're joining us today. And in this second segment of the show, as I mentioned at the beginning, uh, we are welcoming Dr. Malcolm Cross, professor of political science here at Tarleton State. And as I said uh, also, uh, Malcolm, to our listeners, the our resident expert in the presidency, uh, and uh, Malcolm contributes columns in a number of places and writing regularly on a lot of these different issues. But when it comes to the presidency, and in this case, the vice presidency, and talking about debates, uh, he's the person for us to go to here. And so welcome, Malcolm. Glad to have you on the show today. Well, thanks. I'm glad to be here, too. Well, we, we had a another debate 
and, and we, it may be the last one. We don't know at this point, but uh, it seems like a lot of wrangling going on. And I'll ask you that question in, the, in a moment, whether maybe there it'd be better if we did not have another one. But, uh, but let's look back this week at the uh, debate between the vice presidential candidates, current vice president Mike Pence, and uh, a candidate, uh, Kamala Harris, uh, for the Democratic Party. And um, really looking at this, I think one of the things for our listeners to understand is what what has been the role of having a VP debate? I mean, has this always been, since we've had these televised debates, uh, I, I don't recall that they've always been a part of that. But on, on the other hand, what what role do they play or what significance is it for uh, this election process? Uh, and then let's, we'll talk a little bit about this particular one. Okay. Well, um, the first uh, vice presidential debate was held in uh, 1976 uh, between uh, Walter Mondale, the Democratic nominee for vice president, and Bob Dole, senator from Kansas, the Republican nominee for vice president, uh, there were no vice presidential debates in 1980, but there have been vice presidential debates in every election, uh, in every presidential election year since then. Um, normally, the purpose of vice presidential uh, debates in general is uh, just to show the voters uh, what sort of person was nominated by the presidential candidate and to maybe give them a hint as to uh, who would be taking over should something happen uh, to whomever is elected president. Um, they have not been taken too seriously. There is no evidence to indicate that they've had much of an impact on the outcome of elections until now. Uh, for example, uh, Dan Quayle, the Republican nominee for vice president in 1988, did very poorly against uh, Senator Lloyd Benson, the Democratic nominee for vice president. That was the famous uh, debate in which Lloyd Benson looks at Dan Quayle and says, you are no John Kennedy. Um, and, uh, but uh, the Republicans still won. Um, what makes the vice presidential debate more significant this year than in the past is the fact that whoever is elected president next month will be the oldest president in history. And We've seen with President Trump and the COVID virus that we have some serious health issues. President Trump is saying that he's recovered, he's doing fine. Uh, medical experts raise significant and legitimate doubts about how accurate he is. On the other hand, Joe Biden is roughly four years older than President Trump. And while he does not appear to have any significant health issues, he will be in his 80s at the end of his first term. Um, and uh, commentators are beginning to raise the question that uh, given the poor health of President Trump and given the age of uh, Joe Biden, there is a better, uh, there's a greater chance than normal that either Kamala Harris or Mike Pence uh, could conceivably become president of the United States um, on the demise of whomever's elected president. Well, we know that uh, Mike Pence has had gubernatorial experience, executive experience now as vice president for four years. So I, I don't think going into this debate, there was a lot of question about uh, his uh, capabilities. I mean, I, I think if you got into a partisan environment, of course, that would be there. But but when you're looking at executive experience and seeing uh, uh, what he's had, uh, I think there were a lot of questions about Kamala Harris. I, I, I think my question here is, did uh, in terms of their individual performances and, and and not so much again the issues I mean those have been batted about in the in the news and media for the past week or so on the different uh, policy fronts and and we did get to see a little more uh, policy uh, in this uh, debate than we had seen in the previous one but uh, uh, some of the things I listened to over the week you had people saying hey th this is what we needed to hear if if uh, Senator Harris had to step into that role uh, uh, does she uh, exemplify, does she present herself in a way that people could see her being president of the United States, uh, which is, I think, a, a very legitimate question. Uh, based on performance, do you, do you think that those concerns were met, or do you think that it raised additional concerns or not? 
Well, I think those concerns were met. Uh, first of all, uh, a couple of points about executive experience. Um, I personally think executive experience is overrated. Uh, uh, for example, Abraham Lincoln had no executive experience before becoming president of the United States. And we, uh, or presidential historians, normally say that Lincoln was our greatest president. Um, now, as far as uh, Kamala Harris is concerned, uh, she did indeed uh, have executive experience as the Attorney General of California, uh, running uh, what she proudly refers to as the second biggest Justice Department in the United States, second only to the United States Justice Department. As far as her conduct and that of Mike Pence, I think they both established themselves as credible future presidents. Um, both were knowledgeable, both were well-organized, both were relatively civil, uh, both came across, in my opinion at least, as strong leaders. So uh, I think based purely on their performance uh, in the debate, um, they would come across as credible presidents. And of course, they both have uh, significant executive experience as well. Uh, Kamala Harris as Attorney General, Mike Pence as governor, former governor of Indiana. So contrasting the, the two debates, the, the first presidential debate between President Trump and former Vice President Joe Biden, and now looking at this one, uh, does there's a lot of conversation about the value of these, uh, especially if you're going to have such a contrast or uh, or what happened in the first debate, which I think became very painful for a lot of people to be able to watch that and, and really gain anything from it, uh, uh, which makes the case, too, to say, well, are these just become so political now in terms of, of strategy that they're really not about the, the substance or do they have a, a place at all? And that might be an ongoing conversation if we end up seeing the last two scheduled debates canceled. One's already uh, uh, President Trump said he wouldn't do it virtually following the recommendation of the Presidential uh, Commission on Debates. And then Vice President Biden uh, immediately schedules a town hall type event with ABC on, on that evening. So, uh, I mean, I think it's very likely that we may not have another one. But so what, what do you, I mean, is that a, maybe in terms of this race, that might be a, a good thing, but going forward and looking at the role of, of these debates, what, what, what do you see as the purpose they serve or, or is there, should this be rethought and, and looked at in another way? I think debates contribute a lot less to discourse than they sometimes get credit for. There's very little evidence to indicate that debates uh, between party nominees uh, change the outcome of elections one way or the other. Of course, you can never be a, uh, entirely certain because you can't replay an election, have an election with the debate, with the debates, and then run it again without the debates and see what happens. Uh, but polling normally shows that at best, debates uh, may uh, have a little bit of an impact on the margins. And in a really close race for president, the uh, in a really close race for president, uh, there could be a shift of enough undecided voters, um, maybe one or two percent, to throw the election one way or the other. Uh, Kennedy-Nixon might be one case. Uh, Kennedy did marginally better than Nixon, and Kennedy won the election. Um, on the other hand, uh, there's no evidence to indicate that, despite the fact that Walter Mondale clearly uh, outdebated Ronald Reagan, at least in their first debate, uh, that he was able to shift the dial in his direction one way or the other. Um, as far as whether or not it would be a good way, uh, you know, a good idea to do away with the debates, uh, if the only debate we had to mention we, we could look at was that miserable farce of a presidential debate, uh, then we'd be doing everyone a big favor, not least of all President Trump, by just abolishing debates in the future. I have seen every presidential debate since 1960. I've seen every vice presidential debate since 1976. And I can say without a doubt that the debate last week was the absolute worst uh, performance, the absolute worst debate. And quite frankly, 
the worst performance uh, uh, that has ever been offered by President Trump, the worst performance of any presidential candidate. And it would be highly beneficial if that were the model for future debates just to do away with them. I would strongly recommend, not that I have any hope that President Trump would ever is going to hear my recommendation, that he take some lessons from, um, from Mike Pence. The debate on Wednesday had its flaws. Um, candidates debated the issues, candidates talked over each other, but on a, if you were to, to say that the, uh, that the Trump-Biden debate was uh, an F, uh, I would give uh, the debate, uh, the vice presidential debate, a solid B. Um, you know, as I've indicated, both, uh, both, um, both Pence and Kamala Harris handled themselves well. They spoke with a fair degree of substance, a great, de a great degree of knowledge. And if that was the model for future debates, I'd say, at the very least, they're not going to harm. They're going to help the voters get more educated, uh, even though debates normally support and reinforce the prejudices that the voters take into the debates in the first place. And as I say, they only change a few votes around the margins. They make a difference in, they may make a difference, nobody knows. They may make a difference in really close elections, but say in Reagan-Mondale, wouldn't yeah. make a difference. Yeah. Uh, President Trump in refusing uh, to participate in the in the proposed virtual debate is doing the right thing, but for the wrong reasons. Uh, there's nothing wrong with a virtual debate. One of the Nixon-Kennedy debates was virtual, um, and um, they were speaking from different, uh, I think, from different coasts. Um, but I mean, President Trump seems to think it's okay to debate face to face to show that he's not afraid of getting the COVID virus again. He th seems to think that a virtual debate is a, some sort of sign of weakness. Uh, that's an idiotic idea. The right, the real reason why President Trump should not participate in another debate is simply because he's so awful, uh, or at least he was so awful last week. And uh, when you're doing something really, really badly, you don't want to keep doing it. Well, and that, that was that relates to my. Uh... Next question that was in looking at this, and this is moving more on into the area of political strategy, because it, it did seem that in 2016 uh, that he 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 did moderate to some degree uh, he, when he was speaking to his base. He was saying one thing, but when he was engaging in, in the debates uh, themselves and and I don't know, we've got a lot of factors influencing this. We've got the fact that he he has covid and he's dealing with whatever issues he's having to deal with there. Uh, this is doesn't appear on the national uh, level now to be as close in any way as the race in 2016. I mean, the looks like Biden has actually gained a, a little bit in that margin uh, since uh, uh, the uh, the last two debates. Uh, but on the other hand, like you were saying, in in looking at what Pence did, it just seems like in terms of a political strategy, the the best thing that Donald Trump could do would be to come back and have a solid debate performance in which he he puts the the brakes on a little bit and 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 tries to be much more focused and i and i don't know if that's a possibility at this point i mean with all these other factors and then he is you know cuz some looking back at 2016 there were some who said well he 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 didn't think he would win uh, and and so he just it was full throttle and then as it became more of a possibility getting the convention nomination i mean as he got got closer and closer i mean is it a, a chance that he's fallen back into that with all of these factors that are influencing it? And he just, he just doesn't care at this point. It's let's get this done and, and over with. Uh, I mean, that doesn't, to me on the surface, doesn't strike me as his personality and approach that he would ever quit or give up or just kind of say, well, this is why do, why are we doing this? Because it's not, it's not going to have an impact, but I didn't know if you had any thoughts on that and looking at it more from the strategy perspective, if you were going into these final three weeks and you said, we've, we've got some way to close that gap. If we're going to have a chance to win this election, we've got to get it back within that three or four or 5% point margin across the country in order for it to be a possibility. Well, um, getting back to 2016 for a moment, I think, 
uh, Donald Trump uh, was more focused in 2016 and more issue oriented. Uh, of course, he's not uh, remembered for that. He's uh, remembered for all the pot shots he was taking at Hillary Clinton. Um, but what you would see is that in the 2016 debates, he would frequently sound out uh, fairly measured, fairly focused, fairly knowledgeable, and make a basically good impression. And President Trump in the past has shown flashes of being uh, self, of being disciplined, knowledgeable. Uh, uh, when he gives formal speeches, uh, he actually does pretty well. I was very encouraged by uh, his State of the Union message at the beginning of 2020. I thought it was a great speech. It was well delivered. If the president could somehow find his inner Mike Pence or uh, find his inner adult somewhere and could speak in relatively measured, relatively courteous tones, measured and courteous for him at least, um, and wage an issue-oriented campaign between now and November and participate in issue-oriented debates virtually if, uh, if health concerns dictate, he might be able to close the gap. Um, the real question in looking at public opinion is not uh, how, it's not the margin by which Joe Biden is leading Donald Trump nationally, as we saw in 2016, uh, that means diddly squat, basically. Um, it's the margin by which Joe Biden is leading Donald Trump in the battleground swing states, which is where the election is going to be uh, decided. Mm -hmm. um, the public opinion polls uh, show, on the one hand, uh, Biden is leading in states that Trump must win. But on the other hand, there's some evidence that the race is tightening, that the margins, say, in Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, are they're in Joe Biden's favor, but they're narrower than they are nationwide. And a good, solid, fact-filled, rational, calm presentation by Donald Trump would not hurt. And it could swing undecideds in those states and give them a better chance of victory. Um, to be perfectly honest, based on what I saw on the first debate, at the, you're asking a lot of President Trump right. uh, to try to get his act together. But um, what does he have to lose? If it, right, uh, right. Well, another issue that's come up this past week, of course, was the a diagnosis of the president with COVID and his stay at Walter Reed. And so that, that came into the mix as well. It, it came into the debate, but uh, I wanted to focus here for just a moment with your, your knowledge of, of the presidency and, and looking at this in the past uh, quickly, it was politicized about how he was handling this or how his doctors and those around him, his leadership and so on. And a lot of the criticism calling for more transparency. This is the leader of the free world. We need to know, you know, how, what his, uh, you know, pulse is and uh, his, his oxygen levels and, you know, all of this, this, this data. And uh, in speaking with you to prepare for the show, uh, uh, you looking back on this, this has not always been handled the same way. I think there's this expectation that people have, especially if that's not maybe the, the person you support in the office or whatever that is, and we're in an election environment here that, hey, we need to know everything. What What is actually happening here? But that that's not always been the case. And I, I thought it'd be helpful for our listeners here as we kind of wrap up the show today, just to look back at that and see what what are some of those differences and, 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 and how does this kind of play in terms of looking at it both on, I would say, executive power and the, and the concerns that people raise about, well, who's actually in charge and what, what, uh, what level of, does that bring a level of security or, uh, or so forth? And then the political side of it uh, is, is these are often opportunities to try to, uh, to diminish the stature of an elected official or a candidate. Mm -hmm. So, well, <clears throat> back in 1963, uh, during, no, it may have been the, the 64, 65 television season, there was a television anthology program called Profiles and Courage. Um, the name of the program was taken from John F. Kennedy's Pulitzer Prize winning uh, book on US senators uh, that he produced in the mid 1950s. Um, 
but the focus was uh, on was somewhat different. One of the episodes dealt with uh, President Grover Cleveland, um, one of the first presidents whose health was really shrouded in secrecy. Um, President Cleveland had developed um, a tumor on his jaw, and he was whisked away on somebody's yacht, and a doctor came on board, removed a section of his jaw, installed a rubberized replacement, and the reason why Cleveland wanted it kept secret is the fact that uh, he was afraid that if word got out that he was in bad health, you know, cancer was a lot less curable back in, uh, back in his day than it is now, that uh, he would lose the respect of Congress. Uh, it would become more difficult uh, for him to get his legislative initiatives through Congress. And so there's, there's always been this relationship between um, a president's health and what his health has been perceived as and uh, what it really is. Um, Presidents Woodrow Wilson, Franklin Roosevelt, John Kennedy all had very serious health concerns that were kept secret from the public, especially, um, you know, Wilson spending the last year and a half of his presidency uh, as a semi-paralyzed stroke victim. Uh, Franklin Roosevelt during the 1944 presidential campaign trying to project an image of, of vigor and health, but still suffering from the various illnesses that would do him in. Um, on the other hand, you've had very uh, self-confident presidents like Dwight Eisenhower and Ronald Reagan, who have been more candid about their health. Um, Eisenhower's heart attack, Reagan's uh, abdominal cancer. And uh, they've been public, they've been candid. And of course, Reagan's assassination attempt. As I say, they've been public and they've been candid and and uh, they were able to physically recover from those problems. Uh, with President Trump, uh, on the one hand, it is, uh, it is, you know, many healthcare professionals are saying that he's being absolutely careless, um, you know, trying to get out in public again uh, after his brush with COVID-19 and uh, that he's behaving in an irresponsible manner some have raised the possibility that uh, maybe some of the medicines he's taken uh, uh, have distorted his judgment. Uh, Nancy Pelosi has gone so far as to talk about examining the 25th Amendment, which deals with presidential disability, if and when and how and for how long to replace a, a president who may be medically disabled. Uh, I personally don't think much talk about the 25th Amendment is going to come around, but certainly President Trump's perceived irresponsibility and uh, poor judgment um, will figure into the mix, could be exploited by the Democrats, could have an impact on the outcome of the election. One of the things that uh, I was thinking about in looking at this issue was we, we all have to know that it's the president of the United States and the quality of care. Uh, I mean, I think that that's, that's part of it to whether we, you know, all the details or not, that, that, that the quality of care is certainly there to try to work through whatever's needed. And of course there's, there's a lot of unknowns about COVID uh, especially when it comes to individuals and what, what the impact would be. Um, and so the other, the other side of that, and this is where, uh, I don't know if you have some insight looking back historically on this, but some brought up saying that, that well, not all of this may not have necessarily been recommended by medical professionals, but he's the president of the United States. And if he orders somebody to do something, <laughs> uh, that, that they, they have to do it. And, you know, and I don't know in terms of that, that environment, I'm, I'm not, saying to be a fly on the wall and, and see what all goes on and all of that. But um, it, it, that strikes me, though, is in, with Trump's personality would be uh, if he makes a decision about something and wants to move in a certain direction and and he may have that option. I mean, I, I would think that it'd be more presented to him to say, look, Mr. President, we can we, we can do this or we can do this. These are some thing, options that we have that we feel are within a range of possibilities to get the outcome we want. And, and 
and for some reason, all of that gets very politicized. But I, but I would think that that would be what's put in front of him, much like we know in the policy realm that a lot of decisions that the president makes on policy, those are those are vetted via the agenda and the and the 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 uh, the role of, of of that administration, and then put in front of him of saying, "Okay, oh, here, here are your options: yes, no. What what do we do?" Uh, I don't know if you have, have any thoughts on that, but to me, that seems to kind of get to the heart of it and kind of clear it up to say, look, he's a human being. He can make decisions and choose given the options that are provided to him. Well, uh, I mean, yes, indeed, he can make decisions based on the options provided uh, to him. Um, uh, and he is going to insist on his own way, no matter what the options are. And nobody wants him to either reinfect himself or to uh, damage his health or to damage the health of anyone uh, uh, around him. Um, presidents of the United States in general do have a way of getting their own way. Um, even if a person can legally resist a presidential order, uh, he's not going to want to do it. Um, I, I think that the best one can do is uh, the hope that the president uh, does no more damage to himself or to anyone else and then see what happens. Uh, whatever happens, he is going to have to accept uh, the consequences of his actions. Unfortunately, others are going to have to accept the consequences of his actions or, as well, and they may not have a choice, and uh, one hopes those consequences are not bad. Dr. Cross, I want to thank you for joining us today. It's always very informative, especially looking back at uh, the presidency and looking at uh, what I said at the beginning of the show, we're kind of drinking out of a fire hose here with the amount of change that we have on a daily basis with all of this. So thank you. And we'll look forward to having you back on the show uh, after the election to kind of look back and say, hey, what what happened? You know, what? How, how did we get the outcome that we did? So thank you very much for joining us today. Okay, well, I'm, I'm happy to be here and look forward to being back. And thank you to you too. Thank you for listeners for joining us as well. That's all for On Politics for this week. Join us each week right here on KTRL 90.5 FM at noon and streaming on tarletonradio.com. See you next week. Radio Network podcast with production from me, Taylor Welch, and me, Carissa Cole. Find more great shows by searching Tarleton Radio Network wherever you get your podcasts.